There's no question after Jesus, of course, that there was anyone who was more influential on the direction and the development of the early church than was the Apostle Paul. I mean, 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament have been attributed to his authorship. He planted at least 20 different churches and three different continents. But maybe most significantly, he really codified the key doctrines of the Christian faith. Not that he created them, but he really delineated them in an orderly and comprehensive fashion. And none is more important than the doctrine of salvation by grace based upon a faith in Christ alone. That's why he wrote to Titus in the third chapter of that short letter. And he says that we're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy that we're justified by his grace. Or in Ephesians 2.8, he said, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. The doctrine of grace was and continues to be the most novel and unique theological uh, concept that we find anywhere in religious history or religious doctrine. In fact, the doctrine of grace that we can be saved not by anything we have done and not excluded by anything we've done, but we are saved simply by believing in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is a concept that is exclusive and unique to Christianity. You will not find the idea of getting to heaven by grace in any other religious system. In fact, it is probably the one thing that indicates more quickly when something is not a Christian doctrine or not a Christian faith when we see that they have a list of things that we are required to do in order to get to heaven. This was and continues to be the heart of what it means to be a Christian so that even when the apostles in Acts chapter 5 said, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, they were underscoring this idea that it is in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is maybe why Luke chose to make Paul's story the focus of two-thirds of the book of Acts, especially the story of his conversion that we just began reading the first part of, actually. Three times in Acts, his conversion story is recorded in chapter 9, chapter 22, and now here again in chapter 26. Now, it's interesting, by Paul's own admission, Grace was not the basis of his previous life or belief system. He was, as they would be referred to today, a son of the Torah. In other words, he was born of the books of Moses, the law, the 613 commandments of the books from Genesis to Deuteronomy. In fact, he said as much in chapter 22 in the third verse when he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is in Jerusalem, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as you are. To the Philippians, he would say, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Interesting statement, faultless. <laughs> the, the, the Greek word is amantos here. It, it means to be unblameable, to not be able to find anything unacceptable. It's not the same as saying you're perfect, but he says, I have 
live my life in such circumspect obedience to the law of Moses that nobody can see or point to anything where I have transgressed. Now, I think that, you know, if you only look at sin as being your outward behaviors and not the fact that you have a sinful heart, then you couldn't make that statement. But this was Paul's perspective that salvation was the outworking of behaving in the right way. It was an external thing. And if we want to understand the conflict between Jesus and the religious systems, all of the other religious views of his day, was he was the one that said, God is looking at your heart. It's what you're going on inwardly that's far more important than what comes out of you externally. And that's a hard thing for people to grasp because our natural mind only can measure what we see coming out of our, out of our hearts, our behaviors, But God says, you know, long before there's ever behavior, he says, if you hate your brother in your heart in a very legal and biblical and and religious way, you've already murdered him. And so Jesus was saying, you have to understand if you give yourself permission to hate somebody, then you may not actually raise the fist or take a weapon and harm them, but in your heart you've already committed the act that ultimately does lead to that kind of murderous unkindness and uncaring. And so it was Jesus created this impossible dynamic to find righteousness in yourself. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand that he said, I'm removing from you anything that you can point to and say, see what a good boy I am. Yet that's the dynamic that Paul lived under. You could not accuse him of anything. He never had the, the faint of bacon on his breath. You know, there, there, was a, there, was, there was nothing. He always wore the right underwear. You know, it was, it was this idea. He conformed his life in every way from early childhood. And we can underestimate how early that was. But that's why Paul could so confidently tell Agrippa, the Jews all know the way I have lived. According to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Now, you hear that word Pharisee, and based upon what you've read Jesus saying about Pharisees in the gospel, you wonder, that doesn't sound like a compliment. But you have to understand that they were the most highly regarded people in their culture. Even today, if you talk to an Orthodox or observant Jew, he will quite readily admit to you, we are the sons of the Pharisee. So Phariseeism as a religious belief and operational system still is quite vibrant in the uh, Orthodox and observant Jewish community. They're not looked as being these hypocrites who are terrible people. They were viewed as being the pinnacle. And Paul essentially says, as you can talk to anybody and you look at the top of the heap, I'm at the very toppy top of the tippy top of the heap. What does all of that mean? I mean, what did it entail? Well, over the years, scholars have been able to uncover a great deal about Paul's early life based on what was typical for a son of the Torah in the first century. When he says, first of all, that he was a child From the beginning of my life, as a child growing up in the city of Tarsus and Cilicia, we know that if they were sons of the Torah, that the Bible was central to his education and training, and that usually would begin at the hand of his father at the age of three. That most Jewish boys were considered or expected to be literate, able to read, 
not just Aramaic or Greek, but to be able to read the Hebrew scriptures. By five, he would have been studying with a local rabbi, reading the Hebrew text on his own and memorizing whole passages of the scriptures. It's said that it was not uncommon for a five-year-old to be able to recite the book of Psalms 1 through 50 in the original Hebrew text from memory. But secondly, he said, I grew up in Jerusalem. Well, if you had a promising student who was part of a prosperous family, which Paul was, you would have been sent off to Jerusalem to study under the great scholars. And at the greatest of the day was a man by the name of Gamaliel. And so Paul, he said, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers in fact, by that point in his life, it would have been expected that he would have the Old Testament committed to memory and recitation. So that according to the strictest sect, he says, next of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. So over the next decade, as he memorized scripture, he also became literate in all the major philosophies of the Greeks and the Romans. This was what was unique about Gamaliel. He said, if we're going to impact the culture, we need to have to know the belief system of the culture. He understood more than many of us understand in our own day that there are competing ideologies, and those ideologies affect how people live and decisions they make and vote and do everything else with their daily life. And they said, as Jews, we have a view of reality, we have a view of world that is formed from Scripture. We need to understand how they form their belief system and how to inter 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 engage them in an intellectually astute way. Because, you see, the thing they understood in those days is we're here to spread our faith, not to keep it bottled up. Centuries of intense persecution changed that view on the part of the Jews where they began to realize that we need to be protecting our borders rather than trying to reach out and include people from other religions. But at this point, as we read about in the book of Acts, Paul goes to a synagogue and there are all sorts of non-Jews in the synagogue wanting to hear what the scriptures taught. And so he says, I was raised in these things. But most of all, we have to understand that he was fiercely, even savagely devoted to the theology of the Pharisees. Now, clearly, Paul excelled during his years in Jerusalem. He, he became, by his own mission, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a Pharisee exemplar. In Galatians 1.14, he tells, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. In other words, Paul's saying, I was not only a true believer, I was a deeply committed, energized, and engaged believers in my Pharisaical faith. In Acts 6, we find out that he is actually the rabbi of what's called the synagogue of the freedmen. The Latin here is literally libertanos, which simply means peep Jews who had been enslaved and now had, had gained their freedom. Paul's family, his ancestors, had been taken into slavery. We're not given the details, but Paul's father was made a free man for whatever reasons were not given, and he essentially was therefore freeborn. But what a perfect example or perfect role model 
to fill this important synagogue in Jerusalem made up of all these former Jewish slaves who were more intense in their faith than even their ancestors. Paul spoke the Greek language. He also knew the Hebrew and the Aramaic. He probably knew a great deal of Latin. Linguistically, he was broad and developed. He understood the philosophical backgrounds they came from. He was perfectly fitted for communicating to them. In fact, we find it interesting that many of the names of the first deacons are Greek names. Even the first martyr, Stephanos, is a Greek name. And it is the Libertines, the, the, the synagogue of the freedmen, who actually called Stephen up on charges that lead to his condemnation, not by them, but undoubtedly only at the hand of the Sanhedrin, the governing council of the nation. So that based upon Luke's commentary, we also find that he was in some kind of associate role with the Sanhedrin. Because it says in chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul was a hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Now, we know that the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members. But there were two concentric circles around them of those who were on their way up to the top. And it becomes apparent that Paul was somewhere in one of those concentric circles. And it's important for this, keeping this in mind, for a man whose ultimate goal in life was to be on the Sanhedrin, in other words, that's as high as you could go in the religious and the economic and the political world of their day, unlike ours, those things were all meshed together in one. They weren't distinguished. Politics, economics, religion, all those things were one thing. And here's a man who's on his way, moving through the levels, being recognized for his incredible intellect, his learning, his ability to argue and to make the case and to lead others in an inspirational way. Here he is going to the top and being sanctioned by this same Sanhedrin to organize and to carry out the first really intense persecution against Christians in all of human history. In fact, based on Luke's commentary, he goes on to tell him that he was commissioned to lead a great persecution against the church, and not on his own authority. It says in chapter 9, verse 2, Saul went to the high priest, the highest position in the country, and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is to Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, when we talk about the Apostle Paul today, we kind of get visions of some gentleman walking around with a permanent light beam over his head. You know, he's got a halo. We call him St. Paul, and we would name, you know, churches after him. But he didn't go by the name Paul. Paul means little, diminutive. In other words, it's not a complimentary name to be called Paul. It's a name that said, you're not that important. You're not that significant. No, his name was Saul. It literally means asked for. In other words, the father said, this is the son that I asked God for. Isn't he wonderful? It's kind of an exalted name. He's Saul of Tarsus at this point. And he is proving that all of that investment of time and money 
love and care and encouragement was worth it because he was on the fast track to reaching the highest pinnacles of success within the cultural context that mattered to him. So it's really easy for us to forget who Saul of Tarsus was, that he was a self-righteous bigot, that he was heartless, he was cruel, he was wicked, he was an awfully sinful man. We would say he was a really, really bad guy. Now, I know you're saying to me, well, you're kind of overdoing it. Have I ever overdone it? But he readily admits the same when he says in chapter 9, verse 26, he said after he gets saved, when he tried to join the disciples, he gets saved, he tries to show up at church. You know what the reaction is? A lot like mine was when I first showed up as a hip eye getting saved. They didn't want to let me in. When he tried to join the disciples, they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. Keep in mind, what does it take to have somebody say, I gave my life to Jesus, and everybody in the room is going, no. Nah. <laughs> Anybody but you, no. <"Nah." laughs> Not going to happen. Paul himself later told the Galatians, they only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's not exaggeration. <laughs> He was trying to destroy the faith. Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. To Timothy, he would say, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And yet he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Again, I would urge you not to look at that and say, well, isn't that humble of Paul to say that, I'm such a sinner. No, he's dead serious. He said, I'm the worst of men that have walked upon the earth. At the time that he was doing all these terrible things, he must have been reminded of Jesus' words where he said, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. You see, this kind of self-righteousness, this kind of narrative that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys is something we readily subscribe to. But the problem is it tends to make us hard and heartless, somewhat inhumane, almost as if we say because God isn't human, we should be inhumane. So, I mean, think about this for a moment. When you're consciously, purposely, intentionally, deliberately destroying people's lives in the most blatant and obvious way and you feel good about yourself. You feel good about yourself. You're destroying somebody because they deserve to be destroyed. He believed the evil he was doing was good. And I have to say to you that all people are kind of like that. <laughs> that when we become uh, committed to something, we somehow can overlook the importance of basic, and I wouldn't call it human kindness, I would call it simply divine kindness. As Paul would explain of his own self, he says, I was convinced 
that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is what I did. I was convinced. In other words, he could watch Stephen being stoned and then go home and have a great night's sleep. Not because he's a sociopath, maybe he was in making, but because he was so convinced that this was okay. What may be more startling to us and is rarely ever noted for reasons I'm not quite sure, but when we begin to look at the chronology of Paul's life and we compare it to the chronology of Jesus' life, we begin to realize that Jesus and Paul were contemporaries, that he had personal knowledge of Jesus. Their paths had to have crossed in Jerusalem on at least more than one occasion. Undoubtedly, he had heard Jesus' teachings. He may have even witnessed some of Jesus' miracles and would have been among those Pharisees who said that Jesus did those miracles through the power of Satan, through the prince of demons. Am I altering your view of Paul before he was saved any bit here? That when Jesus is decrying the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he's talking about Paul. Like his mentors, he considered Jesus a false prophet and a deceiver. He undoubtedly rejoiced at his crucifixion as an act of divine justice against a man who would arrogate to himself equality with God just as he did when he stoned Stephen to death. For Paul, Jesus was dead. His followers must either repent or die. And they, like Jesus, were in league with Satan. They needed to be silenced before their heretical, destructive doctrine spread any further among the common people. Regardless of what it took, they had to be eliminated. Rabbi Saul hated Jesus and all those who followed him. Which makes his Damascus Road experience, his conversion, so incomprehensible to the early church and so unimaginable to his Jewish friends. His commitment to Phariseeism was so radically extreme that only something more radical and more extreme could have opened his eyes. I'm sure that there were those who were praying in the church in those days that God would strike him dead and save the church. But per God, per usual with God, he had something very different in mind. Not a lightning bolt, which Paul deserved, but rather a light from heaven. A light that he, Paul said was brighter than the sun. Now, that's a hard, that's kind of an abstract concept for those of us in the Northwest. But in some places in the world, the sun can be very bright. In fact, I want to forecast the weather for next year that summer is going to fall on the weekend, so get ready. He says it's brighter than the sun blazing around me. It's not just bright in the sense of light. It's bright in the sense of intensity 
blazing around me and my companions, so much so that we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In the short, he, he kind of says, you know, it's useless to kick against the goads. It may more literally to us, it's useless for you to fight against my will. You're never going to win, Paul. This, you're never going to succeed at what you're trying to do. And that's where I love what comes next. Paul asks that centrally important question, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And the response I am Jesus, not dead Jesus, not heretic Jesus, not false prophet Jesus, but I am the Lord Jesus. In fact, the original uses this word kurios, which is so important. It, it means to be the master, to be the ruler, to be the owner of everything and everyone. Uh, the one who makes and the one who disposes of all things, the one who has absolute control, the one who has, has supreme authority. In that moment, Paul had literally been slain in the spirit, blinded, befuddled, and baffled, so that in his very dismay and desperation, he would ask the right question, who are you, Lord? Really, it's a strange question in this day and age, isn't it? Most people I talk to are obsessed with, who am I, Lord? And we assign such a high importance to that, that I've got to find my own identity, my own person. I've got to find myself. When I was in Eastern meditation, I would go into these kind of uh, trance states, older state of consciousness, really, <clears throat> and I would go into myself to discover who was on the inside. And I have to tell you, I wasn't real happy when I found me. <laughs> what I found was I was a, a sinfully terrible person. Oh, I mean, I could fake people out. That's the only way my wife would ever marry me. But the whole point was that inside of me was this worship of an evil trinity called me, myself, and I. And everything I did was to feed into that thing of how can I enhance me, myself, and I? How can I make myself godlike? How can I deify my existence and find my purpose within my own self? And it takes a while to come to the realization that that is an empty bucket. I remember the night that began to change my life when I finally got down on my knees and I prayed and I said, okay, God, who are you? Who is Jesus? Is he really who they say he is? And it's amazing when you ask the right question, you get answers. But we have to be brought to a place. Sometimes we have to be blinded and baffled and befuddled and desperate and in a state of dismay till finally we say, okay, God, let's stop talking about me. You talk about me for a while. No. Who are you? Who are you? And when we ask that question, God is more than willing to reveal himself to us. 
but even many people who have been in the church their entire life and in this humanistic-minded culture that we live in, the humanistic ideology, we believe that our feelings are supreme and that there's nothing more important than how I feel about something to the radical, ridiculous extremes the saying, I can identify as X, Y, Z, completely ignoring science and the chromosome because that's how I feel at this particular moment. That's how far down that tunnel we've gone, that rabbit hole we've gone as a culture because it's all about what do I feel? Instead of being this place going, God, what is your will? <laughs> what do you want? And I can tell you honestly, more times than not, when I've asked God what he wanted, it wasn't what I wanted. I never wanted to be a pastor. I'm sorry, that was never my career goal or my ambition. I remember years ago when I first got saved and there was a student riot at the University of Oregon. And so they were... Campus Crusade was trying to find some Christians to help build up their numbers because they had a microphone in the middle of the student commons there. And they, the rule was, I don't know who set the rule, but the rule was that whoever had the microphone could continue to talk. The minute you stopped talking, then you had to yield the microphone to the next guy in line. So the campus guys, Crusade guys got the mic first because they did something that most of us hippies couldn't do. They got up at 6 a.m., and they grabbed the mic and they began talking and they began talking and they talking and I was going around just dutifully handing out brochures and having them ripped up and thrown in my face by people who didn't like what it said. It had some Jesus stuff on it they didn't care for. And so I'm just standing around and finally one of the guys from campus comes up and goes, guys, we're worn out. I mean, we've been doing this for six hours. Can one of you guys take the mic? You know, and it was really interesting. That was the first time I found myself not doing anything and getting volunteered. Everybody else stepped back, <laughs> literally, and they said, good, you can do it. And they drug me up there, put me in front, front of the microphone, and you'll find this hard to believe. I ended up preaching the gospel for six, two hours, uninterrupted. I know a part of it was just the oddity of this guy who looked like a Q-tip, Skinny as a rail and hair out to here. I had a huge afro. And I know some of it was just curiosity, people going, what the heck? <laughs> but I also felt an empowering from God that I had never experienced before in my life. I mean, think about, this is the first time I've ever stood up and done anything publicly in my life. And it all started not because that's what I wanted to do or that was my ambition for my life. I had a goal for my life. I was to become a lawyer. I was going to buy a Porsche. And I was going to marry a trophy wife. Well, I'd have a trophy girlfriend because I wasn't going to marry anybody. After watching my parents' marriage, I decided that that wasn't the journey I wanted to go on. That was it. That's all I cared about. And God stepped in and did something different. Here's the crazy thing. What, what moments earlier would have seemed to Paul to be outrageously blasphemous becomes the thing that is not only pleasing but perfectly appropriate 
to humble himself before Jesus and praise his name. You see, the story of Paul's conversion is important, and I think this is why Luke repeated it, because it, more than anything else, it informs of, of how Paul came to his understanding of salvation by grace. That we were horribly guilty of understating how bad a person he was, how contrary he was, and how inconceivable, and I do know what that word means, how inconceivable it was that he would come to Christ in that moment. That his life would change, the trajectory. It left the Jews befuddled. They couldn't even bring it together. And finally they decided, we just got to kill him to keep him quiet. And so the rest of his life, he has a contract on him. Think about that. The rest of your life, there is a contract out on you. There's a watfa, as the Muslims would put on somebody they want knocked off. And it doesn't go away when you reach 55 and ready for retirement. It stays with you until you're dead. Because if anyone deserved to go to the deepest, darkest, demonically tormented hell, it was Paul. And by his own admission, he took pride and satisfaction in what Luke recorded as ravaging the church with brutal mistreatment, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison, putting them to death. And no wonder when he comes to faith that he lamented to the Romans saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? To which he answers the question himself. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul would go on to explain that he wasn't wrecked by God so that Christ could repair him. Paul didn't need a cleaned up version of his old self. In fact, it was so dramatic that he changed his name from a name that might cause people to expect something noble and dignified and educated to something that would say just the opposite. Paul wasn't suffering from low self-esteem, just the opposite. <laughs> he didn't have a poor image of himself. He didn't have an inferiority complex. He wasn't dealing with shame. He wasn't dealing with depression. In fact, he did what most of us do. He loved himself. He loved what he's doing. He was getting the rewards and the adulations and the promotions. He was receiving it from all the right people in all the right places. He was on the fast track to success. He didn't need therapy. He didn't need self-help. He wasn't looking for a career coach. What he did need to is repent of himself to repent of his self-worship and repent of his self-serving and repent of his living to please himself as he best defined what that was all about. Well, Jesus did indeed wreck Paul, <laughs> but he wrecked him from his previous definition of what it meant to be successful. His definition of what it meant to be happy or to have purpose or to have meaning as he would later tell the Philippians when he wrote to them, he said, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, 
counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. And again, what was the immediate consequence of Paul's conversion? Well, if he was a rabbi, he had to be married. And if he was married, it was more than likely that he had children. We know that he came from a prosperous family. He lost wealth. He lost family. He lost treasure. He lost status and standing and reputation. He even lost his freedom over and over again. And he suffered brutal consequences at the hands of angry men. And yet Paul said it was worth it. It was worth it. You see, Christ doesn't make good people better. He doesn't even make bad people good necessarily. What he makes is dead people alive. As Newton said, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I have been made alive. It's only when we recognize, as Paul did, that I am a wretched man. <laughs> Without Jesus, I am a wretched man. It's only when we cry out like the prophet Isaiah when he saw the Lord, Oh, woe is me. In fact, it says in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a good and a godly king who brought blessing and enrichment and success to Judah. And when he died, the wheels began to come off the cart. It's a way of saying in the prophetic language of the time when life began to fall apart, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty angels calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And their voices were so powerful, he says, it shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me. Or the New Living Translation said, it's all over. <laughs> I'm doomed. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips. And I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet, I've seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the angels flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Have you ever had a woe is me moment, a wretched man that I am moment in your life? I mean, it can come in a lot of different forms, but you see, I, I really question whether somebody's really had a true encounter with Christ unless they've come to the end of themselves. 
And they said, I'm a wretched man. I'm a sinful man. Because I know that had I not come to that moment point in my life and hadn't asked the question, who are you? That simple admission, I don't know who you are, God. I, I don't know where I'm trying to go with my life. I don't know what I'm trying to do. I feel helpless. I feel hopeless. And I know in many ways the way I deal with people in my life is heartless. Oh, I can talk about being a hippie and filled with love and all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is it was all manipulation to get what I wanted. And when that moment when God shows that mirror to you and you see how, how wretched you look, Reminds me, one day I was shopping with my wife. I know I'm like most guys. You love that. Especially if they're shopping for clothing. The worst is when they're shopping for intimate apparel. And you always wonder, should I be standing in this department? <laughs> they may think I'm shopping for myself. Of course, today that's not a problem, but back then it was. I remember I was, I was sitting there, you know, and she's going through the racks and she turns to me and she says see that mirror over there and I said yeah look at yourself <laughs> and I looked over here and, just <laughs> and in that moment <laughs> look at you look at who who you are look how you're coming across right this moment well I, I, I changed my attitude real quick well I changed my posture real quick my facial expression I love women's underwear. <laughs> yeah, too creepy a response. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but on a serious note, why did you come to Christ? So he could repair your life? Or did you come to him because you wanted to transform it into something completely different? Did you come that he would lift you up and set you free from some bad habits that you're struggling with? Or do you come to let him yoke you to his plan for his life? When Jesus said in Matthew 11, he says, take my yoke upon you. We read that real quickly, but the idea is take my yoke, not your yoke, my yoke. Take my yoke. It means the yoke was what you put on an oxen's neck so he could do the work that you wanted him to do. He said, you need to be no longer yoked to your own ambitions, your own drives, your own goals, your own agenda, your own path of personal happiness. You need to yoke yourself to my wagon. And I'll yoke myself next to you. And I will teach you, he said. And he'll teach us because, number one, he's humble. And number two, he says, my heart is gentle. And number three, when you do it, rather than feeling overwhelmed by the burden of it all, you will find rest for your souls. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? Rest for our souls. I used to have this little dream in my mind, you know, to sit in an outdoor Parisian coffee shop sipping espresso and watching the crowds go by. Parlez-vous français? 
I mean, you know, we all got these little crazy visions. And so one day I was supposed to go teach in Singapore and they canceled me. So I already bought the ticket to Paris. I said to my wife, you want to go to Paris? <laughs> so we went to Paris. It was fun. And I couldn't wait. We sit down in a little outdoor Parisian restaurant, you know, sitting there ordering espresso. And it was thrilling for about 30 seconds. <laughs> Another dream came crashing down. <laughs> and reality overwhelms you. Probably the most notable thing in that tired trip was as we're walking through the Louvre, trying to make our way to the Mona Lisa, which is about the size of a postage stamp in a, in a room this size, filled with people, and we're going single file back and forth through this big, long line, and all of a sudden, we get right in the heart of this crowd, and this gentleman coming at me says, Pastor Ken, what are you doing here? <laughs> true story. That's true. Of course, the thing about true stories, I have to admit, Mark Twain said the best way to ruin a good story is an eyewitness. <laughs> so you, you have to ask my wife what actually happened. I don't know. This is just the way I remember it in my creative memory. But, <laughs> but I know the one thing that I had been looking for was not the thing that I had been pursuing I thought that if I could reach these certain things in my life that somehow it would all come together and I would live happily ever after. And the irony was that I had reached all of those goals by the time I was 19. And the more I went down that path, the more empty and unfulfilled I felt. And I remember consciously sitting there and saying, what difference does it make if I die today or if I die at 50? At 50 at that time was really old to me. Now you're, you're a mere child. And I couldn't come up with an argument against self-destruction. I couldn't come up with why does it matter. When God wrecks you in that way, that's when we find ourselves saying, why am I here? Why is it that I even need to know that there's a reason I'm here? And why is it that I want a purpose? Why, why does any of this matter? And when somebody preached the gospel to me the first time I heard it, I'd heard it many times, but the first time I heard it, I found myself saying, okay, God, if you're out there, if this Jesus is who they say he is, then I need to know who you are. You're going to have to show that to me. Don't have time to explain it, but within 24 hours, I received Christ. And it was unmistakable and undeniable, and it's carried my life the next 54 years. I would simply say, friends, that my concern for many is that, yes, we grow up in the church or we're around the church, we're familiar with the church and the Bible and so forth, but some of us have never really figured out that Christianity is not a self-help organization. It's not about finding your best life or becoming all that you can be. If you want to do that, join the Marines. But the simple fact is that God has created you for himself. He created you to live your wife, life yoked to him to, so that you can learn of him 
that you can become humble like him, that you can experience his gentleness. And in that process, what comes into your soul is a peace that passes understanding. Suddenly, it's not about resisting temptation. It's about experiencing deliverance and power in my life. Because as long as you look at life as being designed to meet your pleasing, to satisfy you, to make you happy, you will be embattled and entrapped by all sorts of petty and ridiculous temptations. But the moment you understand, I was not created for pleasure, I was created for pleasing, pleasing him, serving him, following him. And then when I recognize that's what my purpose is, a rest will come into your soul and those things that used to hold on to you lose their allure and their attractiveness. And you'll go from saying, woe is me, to send 